this morning our scripture reading comes from hebrews ten hebrews ten nineteen to twenty five and if you want to follow along you can find that on page eighteen seventy three hebrews ten starting at verse nineteen Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by taking or by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. This morning is the, the last piece of a, a three-part sermon series on Jesus as our high priest. And this text really tries to pull the previous two uh, texts that we looked at together and brings them together and says, now how do we live? And so we're, we're going to enter into that question of now how do we live as God's people in response to the grace he's shown us. So Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, it, it starts off with this phrase, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to, the, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus that's really the, the first thing that we were talking about, that we have confidence before God, not because of what we've done, not because of anything we've been able to, to kind of knit together or pull together, not because we can go, I, I've done more good than bad in my life, so I'm okay. But we have confidence to enter because Jesus has died. Jesus has died for us, Jesus has come and, and made it possible so that we can be in God's presence without fear. And not just without fear, but with confidence. There's a, a deep-rooted assurance is, is one of those phrases that we have in our Reformed tradition. And, and we'll come back to that. But, but that's the idea here, that, that we can actually enter God's presence without fear, without fear of being destroyed, without fear of being rejected, without fear of being shamed and kicked away. We have the opportunity to enter God's presence because of Jesus Christ and his death on our behalf. It, it adds this as well. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, you may have remembered last week I talked a little bit about the high priest role and all the sacrifices that went along with it. It, it is... It, it has, just in the text before what we read today, it has this whole description again of how the priest every year had to come in and offer sacrifices. And those, those big sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, 
the day when the people of Israel would gather together and they'd, they'd have this big somber day of, of recognizing their sin and recognizing and receiving God's forgiveness as the animals were slaughtered. On that day, it says it was an annual reminder that they are a sinful and broken people. And here, it's saying, but we have a great priest, someone who is who has entered in and who sacrificed himself. And because he sacrificed himself, there's no need for the ongoing sacrifices every year. But our sins have truly been forgiven. We have truly been set free once and for all because of Christ's death and resurrection. Christ, the great high priest, who offered himself on our behalf, has made us right with God in such a way that those sacrifices for sin and for guilt are no longer needed. What has been replaced is, as we ended with last week, sacrifices and offerings of thanksgiving. That's what it remains. A, a life that is lived as a, a living sacrifice in gratitude for God, to God for what he has done on our behalf. We ended by kind of asking that question. Now, what does this look like to live that life of gratitude? This text has in it three lettuce responses. One of my profs said it's a salad passage. If you say it, it's lettuce, 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 uh, and you, you keep hearing that. So three lettuce responses to God's grace in this passage. One is, let us draw near to God. We'll talk about that for a moment. The second one is, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And we'll pick that apart a little bit. And then finally, let us consider how may, we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, this whole passage, as we look at all these three things, we could preface each one of them, because Christ has died and we have been forgiven, let us do this. Because Christ has died and we have been forgiven, let us live this way. So that's kind of the, the framework that we're entering into this text. It's a, it's a passage that's meant to show us how to live in response to God's grace. So drawing near to God. Draw near with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. There's a couple places in this passage where it's using imagery for worship. And the idea of draw near really was centered around a worship experience that people were to draw, to draw near to God was to enter into that space where you knew God's presence was. And for the people of Israel and the people who, who thought within that Hebrew frame of mind, the place where God's presence was was, of course, the temple. It was the place where God's people gathered for worship, where the sacrifices happened. And, and in particular, it was the holy place. It was that, that kind of inner sanctum where God's presence really was. And so, draw near with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. And this was such a different posture. The high priest who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year, just one time a year, the high priest was allowed to enter in. He would enter in and, and had to do all sorts of rituals to, uh, to make atonement for his own sins. But as he was preparing to enter in, they would take a rope, 
and they would tie it around his ankle so that when he went in, just in case he really hadn't confessed his sins, and he died in God's presence because of God's holiness and his unholiness, they could pull him back out. Talk about full assurance. Anybody feeling confident? You're putting this rope on me. Why? Because you think I'm going to die. There wasn't much assurance. There wasn't much hope. There was a, a sense of I'm entering something so holy it can kill me. It was fearful to come before the living God. And here in this text, the writer of Hebrews is saying, folks, because Christ has died, we don't need to be afraid to enter God's presence. We can draw near with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. Leads me to this question, which the Heidelberg Catechism kindly asked a couple centuries back. So what is true faith? How might you answer that? <laughs> what is true faith? Why don't you read it with me? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. I love that phrase, not only to others, but to me also. You know, oftentimes as I, I listen to people and, and some of the pastoral care stuff as, as I'm carrying that out, not only in our congregation, but, but probably particularly as I've worked with university students, one of the things that comes up again and again is the one person I can't forgive is myself. I can forgive all sorts of other people, but I can't forgive myself. We hold on to our sin and we, we can talk and we can profess and we can say, yes, Jesus loves the whole world. And then in our hearts we go, but what about me? Does he really love me? And the Heidelberg Catechism, as they were putting this together centuries ago, literally, they recognized that tendency in us. That we can talk about God's love in the abstract and we can apply it to all sorts of other people but we struggle to apply it to ourselves. The full assurance of our faith means that, that God's grace gets into the chambers of our heart, those little corners of our heart that we don't want anybody else to see, those places where we feel shame and guilt and fear of the future and fear of all sorts of things. And yet this, this writing, summarizing the teacher of Scripture, says it's not just for people out there God's grace is for us and meant for our hearts too. And it spells his grace out in three ways in this passage. The forgiveness of sins. It's kind of a, a letting go. It's, it's a taking off of what's been weighing on us. Sometimes we talk about sin as, as like a backpack that's weighing us down. It's a heavy load on us. And the forgiveness of sin is, is like taking that backpack off and, and putting it down so that we no longer have to carry it. 
the eternal righteousness that comes in here is, is a remarkable way of saying it. Uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul was talking about the ministry of reconciliation that God has given to his people. And at the end of that text, he, he says, for God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. Jesus became that sin so that we might become God's righteousness. There's a transaction that happens there. God takes the sin off of us. Jesus Christ took it and owned it to the point that he became the sin and died on our behalf. But even more than that, not just taking it off of us, it's as if, it's as if he straightened us up again, allowing us to walk, allowing us to move freely as if the sin had never been there. The guilt is gone, the fear is gone, the weight is gone. And eternal righteousness is entering into a way of life where it is as if that sin had never existed. We are free to relate with God, and not just free to relate with God, we are empowered to relate with God and to interact with God with hope, with joy, and a sense of everything being right in the world with us, with God, with others. It's a gift God gives us, the freedom to even now interact with others and with God as God intended us to. And one more, salvation. It's kind of interesting that salvation is the last thing listed. Normally, in our North American culture, when we talk about belief in Jesus Christ, the first thing we do is that he saves us for eternity. And we look down the road and someday I'm going to go to heaven. And that's what God is for. And it almost becomes God is our genie in the lamp or our free ticket to the good life. And here the proper ordering puts it back in its perspective. It says, forgives us for our sin. That's a tangible way of, of interacting in life. Things we experience here and now. Eternal righteousness, that's a way of living that we enter into now. And those things together give us the assurance and lead us to the point where we say, you know what? When God makes everything new, that's going to include me and I will live with God forever. That salvation is given to us as a gift. That eternity focus on top of being able to live with God now. On top of the forgiveness of sins. So we draw near to God with a sincere heart, this full assurance that sins are forgiven, that we are entering into the righteousness of God, that salvation has been given to us by Christ. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is just language again that comes up from that sacramental system. They had, we talked about the, the sprinkling that happened, that after they sacrificed the animals... They would take some of the blood and they would sprinkle it on the curtain of the Holy of Holies. They would sprinkle it on the altar. They would sprinkle it even on the people as a way of symbolizing that the blood of this sacrifice covers you. And it's saying in Christ, his death actually covers us. It restores us to right relationship with God. And the idea of being washed with pure water, we still participate in that image today. 
There was a whole cleansing, purification of water washing us as a reminder that it is God's grace that washes us and gives us new life. And we watch that symbolized every time we have baptism. We see that water washing over us, reminding us that in Christ we have died with him and we are rising to new life with him. We have been made new and made whole. Draw near to God because he allows us to, because he's made the way for us to, because he has moved in such a way that there is no longer anything keeping us from God. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. The church for a long time has articulated the hope we profess in a variety of ways. One of them we say frequently here in celebration with communion. And it goes back to the early church. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Imagine if we said that each day. Christ has died. My sins are forgiven. Christ has risen. New life is possible. I'm no longer bound by sin and death. Christ will come again. Everything that's broken in the world will be restored and made whole. Do you hear the hope in the faith we are professing? Do you hear that hope that's in there, that that sin no longer defines us? That death no longer is the end of our story. That all the brokenness, all the pain, all the suffering that our world experiences and that we experience personally will come to an end because Christ is coming back. In such a short way, the hope of the gospel is being made known. And let us hold unswervingly to that. It means let's not abandon it. Let's not throw it out. Let's not forget about it. This simple statement, it's part of why we say these things with the kids each week. We're introducing them again and again to things that the church has been professing. It's it's underlying hope. Variety of, of different times in the year, we use different phrases. We do the God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. It's a way the church has, has spoken into this hope of who God is in a world that says, where is God? We say after Easter, from Easter Sunday up until Pentecost, the church says, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Yeah. It's a way of reminding ourselves of the hope, this, this hope that lives in the faith that has been given to us. Imagine if each day we just took one of those phrases. If one of the first things we said to our spouse or our kid or our neighbor or our friend was simply, simply something like this. You know what? As you get up today, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. What if we said to, to our, over our, our breakfast meals as we're sitting for breakfast or over lunch break, we, we looked at whoever we were eating with and he said, you know what? God is good all the time. How might that change our attitudes towards our neighbors? How might that change our attitudes towards the, the news we're hearing? How might that change our posture in the world? 
because of God's grace in Jesus Christ, we are able to hold to this hope which says God is good all the time. The church has elaborated on these short phrases as well. We call them creeds and confessions. We've had about six, six times that we've met with a, a group of five young adults in our church who will be making profession of faith. At least four of them are going to make profession of faith on Easter Sunday. We're working on scheduling with the fifth person. But people who have been studying this winter, what is it that the church believes? And, and why do we believe that? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about Jesus Christ? And, and we've been digging into this hope that we profess together. The creeds and confessions are, are one of the ways that the church has over its history gathered its wisdom together to say this is how we profess our hope our trust that God is really true to what he has said the text adds a word in it it talks about being faithful I don't know how many of you read Dr. Seuss anybody some of you are afraid to admit it it's okay as an adult I love reading Dr. Seuss if you come into my office sometime You'll see Yertle the turtle sitting on a shelf, and you'll see a, a Lorax sitting on a shelf, and you'll see like six or seven Dr. Seuss books laying around. I keep them out. Dr. Seuss has a story about Horton lay hatches an egg. Anybody hear that story? Horton, who's this very trusting, trusting elephant, agrees to sit on an egg for Lazy Maisie just for a day just for a short time so she can stretch and take a break and Lazy Maisie takes off to Florida. Oh, hadn't put that together. <laughs> so Lazy Maisie takes off and goes all over the place to all these events and all this big stuff and just has the time of her life and meanwhile Horton's sitting on this egg and and Dr. Seuss's wonderful drawing has this elephant sitting on a tree branch, which is obviously bent now and hanging on the ground, laying on the ground. And he sits there, and he sits there through storm and through winter, and, and he keeps repeating this phrase, an elephant is faithful 100%. And it's trying to get at this idea of character, and where's our character? And the whole book is, is com contrasting two different creatures' character to each other. But in many ways, it gives us a, a small metaphor, a parable for looking at the gospel. The gospel message again and again, and in this text it says it, we can hold unswervingly, unswervingly to the hope we profess because he is faithful. When Paul's writing to Timothy, he, he puts it this way. Even if we are faithless, even if we lose our faith, even if we fall flat, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. The reason we can hold unswervingly to the hope, the reason we can hold on to this hope that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, is not because of anything we've understood or can comprehend. It is because God is faithful. 100%. No shadow of turning. No, no changing his mind and walking away and say, you know what, this is kind of getting boring waiting for these people to get it. He doesn't do that. 
It's like that Romans 8 passage. Who is it that condemns us? No one. For Christ Jesus, who died, is, is now at the right hand of God, interceding for us. God is faithful, even when we are filled with doubt, even when we are filled with fear, even when we hide in our shame, even when we turn from him and choose to sin. God remains faithful. And the reason we have hope is because God is faithful 100%. I was going to put it up there and just put Dr. Phil to get a laugh here, but Dr. Phil Holtrop was a professor at Calvin College for 20-some years, and uh, I had him. He was a difficult and challenging professor in many ways. I wrote one final for him that took me about nine and a half hours to write. It was an awful final. Uh, just writing and writing. Henny even brought me Burger King halfway through the final. But he said a few things. <laughs> he said a few things in that class that have absolutely stuck with me because they revealed the gospel in a way I had never thought before. He asked our class one day, what's the greatest truth? And we debated all sorts of things and argued, and he let us go for probably close to half an hour. And he said, no. The greatest truth is not what we hold on to. In other words, it's not what we can comprehend or understand or, or explain or, or teach to anybody else. The greatest truth is who holds on to us. Who holds on to us? know about any of you, but there have been times in my life where I have cried out, God, where are you? Because I can't see you, I can't feel you, I, I don't know what you're doing, it doesn't make sense. And it's in those spaces that where I can't hold on to God, where I feel like I've lost my hope and I've lost faith, that I have to trust. And I have the privilege of trusting and a God who is faithful 100%, who is holding on to me even when I can't hold on to him. So what do we do in response to God's grace in Jesus Christ? We hold unswervingly to this hope that even in the midst of our doubts and our fears, God will be faithful. He will hold on to us. So if God's holding on to us, if God really is holding on to us, let's consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. I love how it puts this together, love and good deeds. It doesn't want to leave any room there that you can really pull them apart. It's, it's kind of forcing them together and say, you can't say you love somebody without actually doing good deeds that show and demonstrate it and live it out. It wraps them together. find it interesting. I mean, Paul has all sorts of passages where he gives very direct commands about how we're to treat our neighbors. John has direct passages about loving our, our brothers and sisters. And James says you got to look after the widow and the orphan. There's all sorts of very concrete things all through the New Testament about how we can spur one another on and how we can love one another and how, what types of good deeds we can do. And you know the first thing that the writer to Hebrews says? How do we encourage one another? We don't give up meeting together. 
And the word for meeting together is episynagogue. Synagogue. Worship. Gathering together for worship. This, what we are doing as God's people, week in and week out, is a way of encouraging each other. It's a way of coming alongside each other and saying, you know what, if we gather together, we're just in our presence together already communicating something of the hope of the gospel. Sometimes we feel a pressure in our culture to come together, and we used to say it, our Sunday best. We need to have our Sunday best time. We need to make sure everybody thinks everything's fine and okay. But if we take this seriously... If we take this seriously, we need to recognize that not everybody's fine and okay. When we gather here for worship, we're coming here as people who have been living life in a broken world, which means we're carrying brokenness with us. For some of us, it may be our work situation that we bring with us when we come here, and we can't get it off our minds or our hearts because it is so heavy. For some of us, family, we sit a little further from our spouse than we were the week before because of tension for some of us it's it's because we know when we go home and our kids come over they're fighting and they're arguing with each other and it's hard and we're dreading the afternoon conversations that are going to happen for some of us we're dealing with mental health crises and situations that have been hanging on to us not just for a month or two of feeling blue but for weeks and months and years where it doesn't leave us or our children. It is heavy and it is hard. And when we come together, part of coming together is that we can encourage one another and we can spur each other on and, and we can walk alongside each other and we can sit with each other and say, I'm here with you in the midst of it just as Christ is with us in the midst of it. You are not alone when we are the people who need to hear that we are not alone the writer to Hebrews is reminding us this is the place this is the community where we are to experience God's grace and God's love don't give up meeting together even when we're tired and worn out even when it feels like just going through the motions come to worship enter into this space one of our core values is transformative worship. And it's because we believe that God's actually meeting with us here. In worship, God's people encounter the living king of creation. God shows up. God is with us in the midst of our worship. And we're called to live according to his kingdom. Worship is a public event in which God's people declare his reign and by which we are transformed into a people who point to and demonstrate the good news of Scripture by our daily lives. Declare His reign. You know, you don't need to declare God's reign if it doesn't feel like He's not reigning. The time when we need to declare God's reign is when, when we or the people around us are experiencing things in life where it's like, God, where are you? And worship, as we gather together, we bring all that brokenness here and we say together, God is still God. 
God is still faithful. God is still with us. God will continue to be faithful. God will continue to be with us. Because Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And in that declaration, in that recognition that God is still at work making all things new, including us, we are transformed so that we are able to live lives, daily lives, that are shaped by and demonstrate the good news of God's word. All the more as you see the day coming. Advent this year, we said a phrase, Jesus is coming. He's almost here. It could be one of those phrases that we used every day of our lives. Because each day we live, each day of life we live, we are one day closer to that day when God will return and make all things new. And to spur one another on and to encourage one another on to keep going, to keep up the effort, to keep following Christ, to keep learning how to be faithful. We could simply say to each other day in and day out, do you know Jesus is coming? He's almost here. Jesus is coming. He's almost here. We could say it in, in lament. We could say it in those situations when we hear the news and we think, how can this get any worse? And in the midst of saying that, say, you know what, though? This isn't the end. Jesus is coming. He's almost here. We could say it with that deep-rooted assurance in the midst of, of things when we're slugging it out and pushing on and, and things are hard and difficult and we're wondering how much longer we have to keep going. And with that deep-rooted assurance, we can say, even now, I am convinced that Jesus is coming. He's almost here. And we certainly can say it in celebration. Nellie Kersey celebrating her 93rd birthday. And I'm sure she could say it in response to each of these three things. But we can celebrate God's faithfulness and we can celebrate and say, Hallelujah! Jesus is coming! He's almost here. I see his kingdom breaking in. I see it in you and you and you. I see him coming. Do you? We're going to close this message by standing together and saying something the church has said throughout the centuries as a way of encouraging one another in our faith. It's the Apostles' Creed. And I invite us as we say it to, to pay attention to these things as how it declares God's reign, how it reassures us of hope that God is making all things new, how it points us to that direction, that resurrection of the body, of life everlasting. The hope we profess is something that is deep and real and meant to encourage us along the way. I invite you to stand as we say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
and born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.